Good morning. Our passage this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 23. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John the Baptist reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The word of the Lord. Do you um, ever wonder where this world is headed? And especially, do you ever experience doubt, discouragement, and despair about where this world is headed? Think about all the problems that are facing our world. The Pew Research Center regularly polls Americans, asking them, what are the biggest problems facing the country? Here are a few of the things people said on the most recent poll. Things like inflation, affordable health care, gun violence, climate change, racism. No doubt you could add other things to a list like this. These are some of the biggest problems facing our world, but you realize these are just the particular variations on the same kinds of problems that have always faced our world. Things like poverty, sickness, violence, death, economic breakdown, social breakdown, environmental breakdown. Those things are always hard to deal with. Now, throw a global pandemic into the mix, and many people today are struggling desperately to hold on to any kind of hope that this world is headed anywhere good. Do you ever experience doubt, discouragement, and despair about where this world is headed? That's where John the Baptist is in this passage we just read. John the Baptist, his whole life was centered around this message he had that now is the time when God is finally at work. Now is the time when, when God is going to set everything right in the world, and he's doing it all through Jesus. His whole life is centered on that message, but now John's in prison. 
He's been arrested. He's facing execution. And Jesus isn't doing what John expected Jesus to do. If you're a follower of Jesus or maybe some other spiritual path, do you ever struggle to maintain hope that God is doing anything good in this world when so much evidence seems to point in the other direction, including the church? Or if you're skeptical about Jesus or maybe just skeptical about God in general, do you ever feel like, you know, this world is one massive piece of evidence that all of your skepticism is justified? What does Jesus say to all of this? What does Jesus say to our doubt, our discouragement, and despair? That's what this passage is about. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, I thought that we were in a series on why Christians should serve others. So what does this have to do with that? The answer is everything. How? Well, let's find out by walking through this story together and noticing three things. We're going to look at John's expectations, we're going to look at Jesus' answer, and lastly, our response, okay? John's expectations, Jesus' answer, and our response. So first, let's look at John's expectations. Um, At the beginning of this passage, Jesus raises a man from the dead and then restores him back to his mother, and we'll come back to that story. But right after that, it says this, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, all these things means, yes, Jesus raising this man from the dead, but also all the other healings and miracles that Jesus was doing. So John sends two of his disciples to Jesus and says this, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This word look is a word literally that means expect. John has expectations. Jesus is not living up to John's expectations. What were John's expectations? Well, it's all wrapped up in what we could call the story of Israel. The story of Israel is, centuries earlier, God had rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt and then brought them into the promised land. And when they got to the promised land, God made a covenant with Israel. A covenant is both a legal and relational promise or commitment that people make to each other. It says, here's what I'm promising, here's what you're promising, And if either of us fail to live up to our promises, then here are the consequences. Can you guess what happened next in Israel's story? That's right. They failed to live up to their promises. They didn't keep covenant. And as a result of their sin and rebellion against God, God carried them away into exile in the um, land of Babylon. Now, this happened about 580 years or so before the time of Jesus. They lost their land. They lost their home. They lost their kingdom. They lost everything. Exile. But all through the Bible, there's this promise that God keeps making. God keeps saying, Israel, one day I'm going to renew my covenant with you. One day I'm going to forgive your sins, and I'm going to bring you home from exile. And even more, O Israel, one day I am going to send a king who will conquer all of your enemies He will set up a new worldwide kingdom of peace and justice for all of the nations. And in that day, Israel, the world will be made new and there will be no more evil, suffering, sickness, sin, or even death. So for hundreds of years, they were waiting for this, this great return from exile. That's what they were waiting for. And here's the thing. After about 70 years, God did bring them home from exile. Israel got brought back to, um, to Jerusalem. 
But, but here's the real important thing. Yes, physically they were back in the land, but in every other way, politically, socially, economically, culturally, even spiritually, they were under domination and oppression from empire after empire, most recently the Roman Empire. So for hundreds of years, this is their experience. And now here they are, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and no king has come to rescue them. The world is still full of evil, suffering, sickness, sin, and death. They are still in exile. They're still waiting and longing and groaning for a return from exile. John thought that Jesus was God's king who was going to bring about a return from exile. But Jesus, instead of mustering an army and storming Jerusalem and conquering the Romans and restoring the nation of Israel. Instead, here's Jesus messing around in the boonies in these little countryside villages, healing people, which is great, and preaching the kingdom of God, which again, great. But as far as John can see, Jesus is doing zero action toward actually bringing about the kingdom that John was expecting, because John was expecting a political solution to the world's problems. When you think about that, you realize John is a very contemporary sort of person, isn't he? Because we share the same frustrations and expectations. We have this deep experience in our bones that we are living in exile. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. We're alienated. We're homesick, as we were talking about earlier. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. We're in exile. And we're waiting and longing and groaning, just like Israel, for a return from exile. And just like John, we have a tendency to think that the solution to the world's problems is better politics, better science, better technology, better medicine, better economic systems, better social action. But none of it ever works. We're still in exile, and as human beings, we don't have the power to bring about a return from exile in our own strength. So, for instance, Martin Luther King gave his life literally to make this world a better place. And he accomplished quite a bit along with the civil rights movement, did he not? And yet, when you read his autobiography, one of the things you find out is that Martin Luther King grew up in a strict fundamentalist home, but then he went to college, he got exposed to um, more liberal views, liberal theology, and, and he became very enamored with it. Maybe some of you have had that kind of an experience. Um, Especially, Martin Luther King started believing in things like the inherent goodness of humanity and the natural power of human reason. But then he got to a point where he couldn't fully accept that anymore. Why? Listen to what he says. He said, certain experiences I had in the South with its vicious race problem made it very difficult for me to believe in the essential goodness of humanity. The more I observed the tragedies of history and humanity's shameful inclination to choose the low road, the more I came to see the depths and strength of sin. Liberalism's superficial optimism concerning human nature caused it to overlook the fact that reason is darkened by sin. Now, you might say, well, of course Martin Luther King believed that. He was a Christian. Okay, fair enough. Let me tell you another story. 
I'm grateful to Tim Keller for the source on this. There was a, a woman named Beatrice Webb. She lived um, towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Beatrice Webb, she was not a Christian. She was a social activist. Um, she was one of the founders of the London School of Economics. And Beatrice Webb devoted her life to what we would call social justice. Now, she uh, kept a diary all her life, and when she was a young woman, just age of 32, she wrote this. She said, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. But then, 35 years later, after decades of devoting her life to making the world a better place, here's what Beatrice Webb wrote. She said, now I realize how permanent are the evil impulses in us and how little they seem to change like greed for wealth and power, and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has ever been of any avail, and unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? Here's a woman, not a Christian, who's devoted her life to making the world a better place, and she's saying we can never do it in our own power. Why not? She calls it the bad impulse. Dr. King called it our shameful inclination. Friends, do you see that Israel, it's not just Israel, is it? Our whole world is in exile. We're longing for a return from exile, but we human beings don't have the power to bring about a return from exile in our own strength. And as a result, we are constantly having our expectations shattered, and we are constantly struggling with doubt, discouragement, and despair. Now, does that mean that we should just throw up our hands and give up? Or is there some other option available to us? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just looked at John's expectations, but secondly, let's take a look at Jesus' answer. Because remember, John sent his disciples to Jesus saying, hey, are you the one to come or should we be expecting somebody else? That's a yes or no question, by the way, but Jesus almost never gives yes or no answers. Instead, while John's disciples are standing there waiting for an answer from Jesus, Jesus heals a bunch of people miraculously, and then he says this. He says, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, this is an amazing answer. The problem for John is it's not the answer that John was expecting. But sometimes the answer we need is not the answer that we expect. So, for instance, when I was getting ready to propose to my beautiful wife, Jenny, um, I had a plan. We went up to visit her family in Chicago for Christmas, and I had this speech prepared. And so I waited for an opportune moment when Jenny was gone from the house, and I sat down with her father, and I started going through my speech. Um, Mr. Huang, I love your daughter, and I want to spend my life with her, and I go through several things that I wanted to say, and then I end by saying, and so, Dr. Huang, I, I, I want to ask you, sir, respectfully, if you would please give me your blessings that I might ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. I'm expecting yes or no. Instead, he, he turned his head away into the air and called out something in Taiwanese. And I'm thinking, what just happened here? What does this mean? What is he saying? Is this good or bad? What's going on here? Well, what was going on was he was 
calling Jenny's mom to come join us in the conversation. In my ignorance, I'm thinking, well, ask the dad. But the dad's saying, no, this is a family conversation, and we're going to talk about it as a family. And by the way, just to put your hearts at rest, um, they did give their blessings. (laughs) Jenny did say yes. We did get married. But sometimes the answer we need is not the answer we expect. That's what's happening here with Jesus and John the Baptist. John is is looking for a king, a Messiah, who's going to come in strength and bring down the the hammer of judgment on on Israel's enemies. He's looking for a king, somebody who's going to come and set the world right, right now. And friends, I want to suggest that maybe John's biggest problem were those two little words, right now. Because yes, the only solution for the world's biggest problems is for a day of strength and judgment to set all things right. And that's what John and every other first century Jewish person were looking for at that time, a king, a Messiah who was going to come in judgment and set things right. Jesus is saying, John, that day is coming, trust me. Everything will be set right. The world will be made new. All things, the world will be made new in a a world of peace and justice. But John, one day it will come in judgment to bring about a world made new. But until that day, I have come now in mercy to point to that new world, to point to it. Friends, maybe the biggest thing I want us to grab hold of this morning is this. Think about Jesus' miracles. Were those miracles displays of power? Absolutely they were. I mean, Jesus is raising people from the dead, but if it was only about a display of power for power's sake, think about it. There were a lot of other things Jesus could have done that would have been way more impressive. For instance, he could have made the sun do backflips, or he could have um, picked up a mountain with his mind and thrown it into the sea. Even Eleven from Stranger Things would have been impressed with that one. But instead of doing that, when you look at the miracles Jesus actually did do, they were never just raw displays of power for the sake of power. Jesus' miracles were always signposts. They were foretastes of a world in which there's no more evil, suffering, sickness, sin, sin, or death. In other words, Jesus' miracles were a witness to a new world. They were a foretaste of a world made new. But here's the thing. They were not the world itself. They were just a foretaste. But Jesus' miracles were a foretaste of a world made new that made a difference in people's lives today. So if we go back to this story that this passage begins with, remember, Jesus raises a man from the dead, but the story really is about the guy's mother, this widow who's lost her only son. And one of the reasons that we read this story is because I love how it actually points us back to what we saw last week. Do you remember last week, what did we say is the number one most basic reason that we should serve other people? Compassion, right. And you remember that wonderful, fun Greek word we saw? Uh, Compassion is that word splanknon, or gut love. You remember that? Compassion is, is the number one reason we serve others. We show compassion towards others because Jesus has shown compassion towards us. That means compassion is, is incarnating grace. Incarnation just means embodied. It means putting hands and feet on grace. Compassion is grace with a face. But what is the reason that Jesus rose this man from the dead? It's all about this guy's mother. Notice it says that when the Lord saw her, 
He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. One of the main reasons that we serve others is because it's an act of compassion. Jesus was having compassion on her. And so because Jesus has had compassion on us, we show compassion to others. But another major reason that we serve other people is this. And friends, this is the big message for this week. It's this, that service is a foretaste of a world to come that makes a difference in people's lives today. Service is a foretaste of a world to come that makes a difference in people's lives today. Is it the world to come now? No, it's a foretaste. So if you look at Jesus' ministry, he did not heal every sick person. He did not feed every hungry person. He did not raise every dead person. Jesus did not bring a final ultimate solution to world poverty or hunger or war. Now make no mistake, the day is coming when Jesus will do that. Finally and ultimately, he will bring about the great return from exile. But until that day, service is a foretaste of a world to come that makes a difference in people's lives today. And that leads to our last point. We've looked at John's expectations. We've just seen Jesus' answer. But lastly, what about our response? Because what does all of this mean for us as we think about serving other people? And remember the question we began with. What does all of this have to do with us as we struggle with doubt, discouragement, and despair? Well, let me um, offer you just a couple of thoughts by way of application. I've got an inward application and an outward application. And the inward application is this. The deeper you get into God's Word, the deeper it gets into you. Now, some of you may be thinking, what, Bible study? That's, that's what you're telling us? Well, okay, think about this with me. Who was John the Baptist? He was a prophet. A prophet's job is to proclaim God's Word, right? I, I guarantee you, John the Baptist knew God's Word better than anybody else in this room. And yet, when John the Baptist falls into doubt, discouragement, and despair, what is Jesus' answer to him? <laughs> it's Isaiah 35. It's Scripture. It's, um, it's, it's uh, creation. It's the world made new. That's what Jesus' answer to John is. I um, love the way that, that John, I mean, Jesus actually brought Jesus, uh, brought John to see the, the fullness of the answer that he was giving. And now I missed it earlier, but um, Allegra, if you could go back. What was the heart of Jesus' answer to John? It was from Isaiah 35. Thank you. The heart of Isaiah 35, that's what Jesus quoted to John the Baptist. Now, it's one of the most famous passages in Scripture, and notice what it says. It begins with this amazing vision. It says, the wilderness and dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It's this amazing picture of a wasteland um, that's been transformed into a flourishing garden, a world made new. And then the passage ends with this. It says, a highway shall be there called the way of holiness, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Do you know what this is all about? return from exile. And in the middle of the passage, what does it say? It says, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus is quoting scripture to John. Now, if we can go back, the inward application is this, that the deeper you get into God's word, the deeper God's word gets into you. 
John the Baptist was a prophet. Nobody knew God's word better than him. And yet when he falls into doubt, discouragement, and despair, what does Jesus do? He says, John, you know God's word really well, but you need to know God's word deeper. You need God's word to get deeper into you. Because you know it, but you need to know it more deeply. Friends, we're the same way. You know, it's easy for us to think that um, no matter how well we might know the Word, we still need to know it deeper. Especially if you grew up in church, it's easy for us to think, oh, I know what the Bible says. I know who Jesus is. And yet, if John the Baptist, a prophet like John the Baptist, needed to know God's Word more deeply, how much more do we? Because here's the thing, something is going to shape your life, something is going to shape the way you see the world, something is going to shape the way you experience reality, and if it's not the Bible, it's going to be something else, whether that's the internet or TV or social media or all the narratives and assumptions that fill our culture without us even being aware of it. Something is going to shape the way you experience reality and navigate reality. There was an essay in the New York Times just this morning by Ezra Klein in which he's talking about how the internet and social media actually shapes us. And at the very end, he says something like, you know, that whatever we pay attention to, that's what shapes us as human beings. And so how do we want to be shaped? Who do we want to become? Whatever we pay attention to, that's what shapes us. Something is going to shape the way you experience reality and live in this world. And if it's not the Bible, it's going to be something else. So when you fall into doubt, discouragement, and despair, what if one of the main ways you get through that is by getting a clearer picture of who Jesus is? You know, when um, Jesus gives this answer to John, he gives him a whole list of all these things that are going to characterize the coming of the kingdom. You remember what the first thing on the list is? The blind receive their sight. Yes, that's talking about physical blindness, but it's also talking about spiritual blindness. The deeper you get into God's Word, the deeper it gets into you. The more it shapes the way you see Jesus, the more it shapes the way you see the world, the more it changes the way you see everything, the more it changes you. Now, that's the inward application. Here's the outward application. Embrace the counterintuitive power of weakness. Embrace the counterintuitive power of weakness. Remember the reason that John doubted that Jesus is the Messiah? Why was that? It's because Jesus wasn't mustering an army, storming Jerusalem, and conquering the Romans. Instead, Jesus is hanging out with the blind and the poor and the sick. Jesus is hanging out with the socially marginalized and the outcast. Jesus is he's hanging out with this poor widow in some village that nobody has ever heard of. Now, make no mistake, God's power is coming into the world through Jesus. But how does that power come into the world? Jesus says it comes to, to the, um, not to the strong, but to the weak. It comes not to the healthy, but to the sick. It comes not to the rich, but to the poor. It comes not to the moral heroes, but to the moral failures. God's power comes into the world through weakness. That's the gospel. And the ultimate way we see God's power coming into the world is through the weakness of the cross. Because at the end of his life, Jesus was blindfolded by Roman guards and beat to a pulp. Jesus became blind so that we could receive our sight. And on the cross, Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to the cross. Jesus became disabled, as it were, so that we could walk around in freedom. 
On the cross, Jesus became the ultimate leper, rejected not just by the world, not even just by his family and his friends. Jesus was rejected by God himself. He became rejected so that we could be accepted. And on the cross, Jesus cried out to hear the voice of his Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But instead of hearing the voice of God the Father, Jesus was made deaf. God shut his voice to Jesus so that we could hear the voice of the Father saying, you are my beloved child. God's power came into the world through the weakness of the cross. Friends, when anybody looked at Jesus hanging on the cross, nobody would have said, oh, here's the place where God is finally at work in the world. They would have seen nothing but defeat, and failure, and yet the cross was the ultimate place where God was changing everything. You know, it's really easy for us to think that our work and our service in this world, you know, it has to be grandiose. So we get this big vision, we build a team, and then we're going to change the world. And then when that doesn't happen, we fall into doubt, discouragement, and despair. Remember Beatrice Webb, after decades of social activism, she realized human beings can never change the world in our own strength. It's easy for us to fall in doubt, discouragement, and despair because we can never change the world. That's God's work. But our work is to point to God's work. And one day God is going to do that work, but until that day, our work is to point to a world made new, to be a witness to a world made new. And so often that's going to happen in the midst of defeat and failure over the long haul. You know, there's a wonderful pastor here in St. Louis named Zach Eswine. He was a professor of mine in seminary. And uh, in in the years since then, he's um, become a mentor and also a very precious friend to me. Zach wrote a wonderful book a few years ago called The Imperfect Pastor. But this book is for all of us. And here's what he says in the book. He says, as you enter ministry, and ministry really is just our service in this world, and if you're a Christian, you've been called to ministry. Zach says, as you enter ministry, you will be tempted to orient your desires toward doing large things in famous ways as fast as you can. But take note, a a crossroads waits for you. Jesus is that crossroads, because almost anything in life that truly matters will require you, you to do small mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. You know, sometimes big things do happen quickly. Praise God. Sometimes God does do things like that. And let me be really clear about something else. This does not mean that we should indulge in what Dr. King called the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. In other words, If there are things we can do and should do, let's do them right now. We should not put off to tomorrow what we can and should be doing today. Dr. King led the civil rights movement because tomorrow was too long to wait. Now is the time. The first Christians didn't wait until the Roman Empire abolished infant exposure. They went out to the trash heaps and they rescued little babies who had been abandoned to die. If there are things we can do today, right now, we should do them. But most of the time, God's work in this world takes place in small, overlooked, slow ways. And that's hard for us. It's hard to embrace. But if we embrace the counterintuitive power of weakness, that means that it will change our vision. It will change our expectations. 
It will change us. And it, it'll actually empower us. It'll give us the ability to persevere over years and years and years of service, oftentimes with very little to show for it. And even more than that, it'll give us the ability to thrive even in the midst of what looks like failure. Because God's work is not, it's not our job to change the world. That's God's work, and one day he will do it. Our job, our work, is to point to a new world. And the more we do that, the more we get into God's word, the more God's word gets into us. And the more that word gets into us, the more, we, the more clearly we see Jesus. And the more clearly we see Jesus, the more we are able to embrace the counterintuitive power of weakness because that's where Jesus is. Do you see him? Is he there with you? The more that vision changes the way you see, the more that transforms you into a witness to the real return from exile, a world made new. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning that your promise is through the ages and your promise is return from exile. Your promise is a world made new. We thank you and praise you this morning for your great promise. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came in a day of mercy to point to that world so that we could be invited into your project, into your kingdom, into what you're doing in this world. We pray this morning that you would help us to, to see you more clearly, to get into your word more deeply, that we might more clearly see who you are, Lord Jesus, and that the more clearly we see you, the more we would be able to join you in your counterintuitive ways in this world, the counterintuitive power of weakness, that we'd be able to serve you faithfully in this world, that our service would be a foretaste of a world to come that makes a difference in people's lives today. Lord, we pray that you would help us, encourage us, so that when we fall into doubt, discouragement, and despair, we would see Jesus and we would join you, Lord Jesus, in what you're doing in this world, for we trust that you will bring about the real return from exile. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.